listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 66 is Erica Rose. She's a California artist that's put out five albums and three EPs since 2006. You're right now listening to Sail Away from 2010's Antebellum. We're going to be talking about two tracks from the 2017 album Low is the Moon. They are a whole lot of lows and X-ray eyes. We'll then look back to 2011's When the Clouds Hang This Low from the album Let Alone See. We'll conclude by listening to On and On by Deer County, which is a collaborative side project from their album Low Country 2016. For more information, see ericarose.com. For more about this podcast, check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you want to support what we're doing, please contribute through patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. So I will have played a little bit of Sail Away from Antebellum 2010. We're going to get very quickly to the new album, Low as the Moon, Arca Rose, and the dot, dot, dots, not the ellipses, as I was pronouncing it for a while. It is Erica Rose and the dot, dot, dots. <laughs> yes. So I was even saying your first name wrong. Okay, well, I'll... No need to apologize. Um, it is my parents confused people tremendously with that spelling. <laughs> Fill us in on where you're at with this current album. If you can give us an encapsulation of the scope from, what, 2009 or so, when you were putting your first recordings out till now. And so what is this thing, this, this ultimate statement here? The latest, at least. Lowe's Moon took a little bit of time to make. It was made during some challenging times. And the record very much came to be about finding the silver lining and pushing yourself through hard times. And so I think thematically, I've always strived to have records be cohesive wholes. And so that became the theme of this latest record, Whereas some of my records earlier on maybe weren't quite as cohesive, but I think as we carried on, we had a respect for the the concept of an album that we were trying to infuse into our work. And, you know, with every new album, refining that a bit. And what about a whole lot of lows in particular? This seems to be the big single, or it should be in any case. <laughs> I would say that that song encapsulates what the album is about in a lot of ways. You know, we've got a whole lot of lows, but we're getting high. It's essentially about trying to find the bright side in the darkest of times.
Do you start with lyrics? What is the, the sort of foundation of the song for you? Are you, you know, just write a piano or guitar with lyrics basic thing and then introduce it to the band? Is that typically how it works and, and with this song? It definitely varies song to song. I sometimes will start with a lyric idea. I sometimes will start with a melodic idea or a chord progression. I tend to listen to what people say. A lot of things I come up with are potentially overheard or misinterpreted um, in the sense of I'll hear something someone says and they didn't necessarily say that, but my brain jumbled it up and it seems like a creative place to start with a lyric. Also in terms of coming up with melodies or chord progressions, I usually tend to have a sense of what the song will be about, even though I might not have the lyrics yet. And then once I have that together, that's usually when I will bring it to first. Usually I bring it to my producer, Dan Garcia. Then usually the next step is to take it to the band. Really? Okay. So it actually gets to a producer before the band. So it's not you're working up in rehearsal or something. Dan is almost like an additional dot, we like to say. He's almost like a member of the band. And usually when I first have a song, I tend to run it by him. You know, what do you think? Do you think this is a good song for us? I have these ideas for it production wise. What are your ideas? So it's a back and forth between us more often than not before we actually decide to move forward with the song. So I was trying to figure out what the overall feel of this thing is. And maybe this has to do with the fact that you're approaching production kind of early in the process, that it has this dark bluesy feel, but there's no particular element that's actually particularly bluesy. <laughs> the lead guitar riff, this sort of slidey thing that's more almost country. It's got, I kept thinking of Beat It in terms of the bass part, do, 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 that, that it's you know got this little staccato thing. It's not quite your typical blues or Fleetwood Mac bass of holding down you know, it's, it's too active for that, but yet it doesn't take up, you know, a huge amount of space that stays in its little pocket. Again, is this kind of just something that evolves as you're working with the band? Or is this a production idea that I, you have an idea of what the density of the bass and drums are supposed to be before people get to it? Or that you just let them figure out what they want to do? Specifically with a whole lot of lows, uh, we had talked about that we wanted it to have a consistent groove to it with the rest of the elements kind of floating above the track. So that baseline was actually part of it early on. That was something that Dan and I had had worked on and he he was actually playing bass when that came to pass. So so he definitely gets a kudos for that one. And then we take it to the band and everyone will contribute their ideas even though we may very well have a certain concept in mind when we we all get together. And I think we all have very diverse influences that come together as a united front, thankfully. Just right from the beginning, I mean, you've got the drums sort of mic'd in the traditional way where you hear them stereo spread as if you're sitting at them. So the hi-hat is on the left. Ah, yes, you notice that. <laughs> but then there's distinct open hi-hats on the right side that are coming in too. So I assume this is like overdubbed or... or This is a very Dan Garcia production style, I would say. Um, he has very specific techniques that he uses, and he comes from the old school of production. So I think even though I maybe missed that window of time, he brings a lot of that influence. But in addition to that, he's not traditional in the sense that he isn't willing to do overdubs with drums. And Dan comes up with all kinds of ideas for overdubs that aren't traditional, even though he starts from that premise. Even when the verses come in, the bass 
it's kind of got a slight distortion on it. It's a strange sound. And just the fact that then the guitar that I assume you're playing, the, the one that is not doing the lead at the beginning, doesn't just... Like I could easily picture whether acoustic or light electric just sort of strumming through the verses. And then that leaves the lead guitar to sort of do the accent strum. But here it's just the accent strum is the rhythm. So it's really the rhythm instruments and the vocals really pop out there. And then you sort of save the actual lead guitar licks for transitions and to give some place to build to. Yeah, we wanted there to be a lot of space in the track. And I think that that's what you're hearing as opposed to, you know, wall-to-wall strumming. We wanted to have that airiness to it, in addition to it having this very consistent groove. Steve Giles, who played bass on the track, he shows up with a giant pedal board, which not all bass players do, but he always contributes ideas conceptually for how we might want to process bass tracks. And then also uh, Mark Thomas, who played the lead guitar. Similarly, he creates all these beautiful, magical sounds. I like to say he has unicorn pedals. So he's very much responsible for that. And then, of course, in addition, Dan Garcia is very much um, responsible for helping with those ideas and having them all congeal. And then, of course, when you get to the chorus, then you have these extra little elements to make it magical. So, you know, light keyboard and then these sort of whispery background vocals. I mean, that's certainly not unusual for you hearing your other work. Can you say, like, are the background vocals purely a studio thing? And then maybe if you do them live, you'll have somebody else sing what you were singing at the time. Or are you bringing in other people on this? What's the process for deciding what goes where with those? Is that another Dan thing? or That is actually something that I tend to handle. Not to say that Dan might not have an idea for the backup vocals, but I have a, a mild obsession, you might say, with harmonies. And so that's something that I, several years ago, actually, right around the time of Let Alone See, I had the opportunity to utilize the studio that I was living at. So I had essentially a studio at my disposal. So I would go in there and just play around with harmony ideas from, you know, morning till night. I would forget to eat sometimes, you know, it was that kind of experience. But I really found that I loved adding those those layers and felt like you could sometimes take a, a song in a completely different direction with with a unique approach to harmonies. So that idea of the harmonies on that was something that I almost had heard in my head while I was constructing the song. And then likewise, where they get added, I guess, is just a matter of, is that the kind of thing you'd go back and forth? You know, the fact that you're adding backer vocals for the fear be the trigger, you be the gun. You know, just for that line, which is entirely a kind of thing like, do you hear it as you're playing it back? It's usually how at least I figure that kind of stuff out. I'm surprised, given what you just said, that you don't tend to overdo, that they're as subtle as they are, that you save them for select lines. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's, that is the beauty of having a producer, is that they can always rein you in when you're, you know, <laughs> when you go a little too crazy. But I think that what I have realized is that sometimes less is more. I could probably do a harmony for every note on a, a particular song, but then you have no, you have no emphasis. And for something like fear be the trigger, you be the gun, it's a hugely important lyric to the song conceptually. So I wanted that line to be emphasized. And that is something I think along the way I definitely learned is that 
harmonies aren't just about making things pretty. Often they create emphasis as well. And it's something that will make a certain lyric jump out at you. So I try to use it in that context as well. As every good rap group knows, to have the the, the backing guy joining you to sit on the one line and... There you go. You know, everyone needs emphasis (laughs) in their music. And then just to kind of finish up on the arrangements here, the keyboard... So again, is this purely a Dan thing, especially at the very end where it kind of the last synth note morphs into this, these other noises here and the second song, X-Ray Eyes, that we're going to talk about. So I know you play keyboard as well, but it's certainly a different thing to write songs on piano versus come up with these crazy, what, sampled synth noise things. (laughs) That, That takes a lot of time screwing around with different sounds before you find something that actually works. I like to call them pretty noises, you know, about those kind of things. Sometimes along the way, it involves in a sense that sometimes it can be, I have a keyboard part idea and I, you know, I have, I have an omni chord and a micro chord and I use those things. Sometimes it's Dan, you know, working on the mix, coming up with these ideas and he's got his Moog that he might be playing around with. Sometimes it's a guitar pedal that Mark Thomas has, who's a lead guitar player. More often than not, Dan, who also mixes our music, manages to come up with a way in which all these things just gel in this, what I think is a very impressive fashion, um, because it could turn into too much, but it always seems that we we land on just enough, I like to think. <laughs> yeah, it's a very concise song, so you're pretty much done with it by two minutes and 13 seconds, and then the remaining 45 seconds or so is this kind of sit on the intro riff with more prominent keyboards and repeat some vocal stuff and play around with these synth sounds. And which I noticed is kind of a recurring theme that you have once you've repeated your verses and your courses a few times, we've got some kind of outro that doesn't go some totally strange direction. It more is like just taking advantage of the atmosphere that you've set up to just let some of the themes echo and some of the sounds echo into the listener's mind, you know, for, you know, you could easily do that for another two minutes rather than 45 seconds. So. Yeah, it's almost like the recap, I might say, yep. you know, and going out on the the vibe that the song has built. So there's no live versions with a high eye and then then have the audience clap along and have just have the extended the extended outro. <laughs> add one more chorus at the after you've strung them along for another 3 minutes. I think we tend not to be that band, but I <laughs> love those bands nonetheless. <laughs> So one of the advantages to having such a stripped down style is that it really gives your vocal a chance to play around, which is the first obvious thing about your voice. I mean, it's pretty. And given that it's pretty, you get to get away with a lot of very expressive fluttering. I I wrote down the Tori Amos School of Vowel Pronunciation that some of the words like I could not figure out. I'm glad that your your lyrics were online because there are a lot of these I could not have figured out just by listening to. I mean, even just that you have lyrics written the chorus, what I hear is a whole lot of lows, but we're getting highs. But I think you have, we got a whole lot of low. Like, so there's an implied we. <laughs> it's a lot of for the sake of the actual sound and the expressiveness. So beginnings have endings too. This is what I noticed in Tori Amos is that I had never heard this in another singer before this is when you say that it's beginnings, it almost sounds like hive that you're actually stretching the vowel toward another vowel sound. I don't know. Is this a conscious thing at all or? This is just what has happened over time. 
it's definitely not a conscious thing. And to be quite honest, I don't really listen to much Tori Amos. So it's interesting to hear that, but not to say that I don't like her music per se, but you know, some, you just gravitate towards certain artists. I would say though, that I like to think of the vocals almost as an instrument and that you would say a certain word potentially in a different manner, similarly to how you would play a note differently, depending on what everyone else was doing. And so it's not something that I intentionally do, but I think that I unintentionally wind up doing that with some of my vowels and some things that were written in a way of, we've got a whole lot of lows, you know, I will drop certain words, but it was written in a way that maybe it's been somewhat reinterpreted once it was performed in the context of this track that we built. Yeah, which I find that fascinating because a lot of times, like when I write lyrics, I'm kind of singing them as I write them. So it kind of has the articulation already built into it. But this sounds like maybe that you have a more pen to paper initial pass and then, or is it just a matter that you've got the melody when you write them in the first place, but it just evolves as you actually get in front of, especially when you put down an instrument, like I assume for the studio recordings, at least you don't have an instrument in your hand. So it really lets you be free with the rhythms of things that you don't even have to, you can be extra flowery in a way that would might even be hard if you had to like strum quarter notes through the whole thing. Yeah, potentially that that freedom does come from doing, because we do tend to do the vocals last. There have been times when we've kept studio takes of vocals, so that, that has happened before. But usually I like to to sing the song once the whole vibe of the track is close to completion. I do feel lyrics, the lyrics are important and I love to write lyrics. I don't want to articulate it in a manner that feels like I'm disconnected from the music. And some people are really great at articulating and being part of the track. And for me, I think I do tend to bend things and swell things, maybe make certain vowels sound slightly different in order to find where I feel I want my vocal to sit. Sure. I mean, it's just kind of an extension of vibrato. You know, you're playing with pitch or playing with rhythm. Like, why not play with the pronunciation too? Or or play with volumes as you go. It's just like a fourth dimension to being expressive, to actually skew the pronunciation a little bit. Yeah, I think too, I, I listened to a lot of music when I was a kid that sometimes I didn't understand the the lyrics to, but I'd look up the lyrics to, but the actual way in which it was sung or screamed, <laughs> depending on what it was, created a feeling that was potentially even more compelling to me than what the lyrics were saying. And then I got to read the lyrics and then oh, wow, that's like the the icing on the cake. I kind of think of it as, are you delivering the lyrics to the audience in a way that they can clearly, on first listen, entirely get the story? Or are you using them as a vehicle for emotion so that it's almost a secret code? Like you hope that they hear enough of it that, that they get the idea, but really, and, and, you know, you obviously put a lot of time into them. So it's, it's every word is, is careful in some way, but that it's not necessarily, certainly in a live gig, they're not going to in almost any live acoustic environment, at least below a certain budget level, the, the PA is not going to be necessarily clear enough or well mixed enough that they're going to get that anyway. So unless, like, if that's really your thing, well, don't have a band, you know, (laughs) just you and your guitar and maybe some out of the way 
rhythm instrument or something like that. But if the Bob Dylan style of delivery, this is a little more crooning. There's a reason that we have those sites like misheard lyrics, you know, where, uh-huh. <laughs> where people always mishear certain things. But I do feel like there are certain lyrics I make a point of making clear. And for example, you know, when you said fear be the trigger, you be the gun, it was intentionally clear, but something like the chorus where you're doing it over and over and you want it to kind of float. And, um, there was a certain vibe I wanted from it that I might not have been quite as clear and enunciated as much so as particular lines in the verse that I feel like are especially, um, important to the vibe of the song. Okay, I think we should introduce the second song pretty soon, but we haven't actually even looked at the sort of literal meaning of the lyrics yet. I don't necessarily, we don't need to go through and interpret every line or something, but do you have any comments about sort of the overall approach to the narrative here? But promise never to grow old while you're still young. So it's like, it's in second person, but then it's got we, like what what is the picture here in terms of there are self-confessional songs. They're all I, I, I. There are love songs. Usually the we's are, and there are the advice kind of songs, which are the you's. And you've got second person and first person plural here. So what's the, the general rhetorical setup? It's meant to be more poetic and create a certain perspective that is essentially about looking at the worst of times as potentially the beginning of something new. And a lot of the lyrics in the verses were more written in as poems, something that I had written, not necessarily with the song in mind. And then the chorus came about because I <laughs> overheard someone talking about a whole lot of love and they kept on saying the the title of the song over and over and over again. And I wasn't having a particularly good day. <laughs> and I just thought in my head, more like whole lot of lows. <laughs> and then I, I went home and wrote that down and I wrote it right next to the poems I had written. Well, I hadn't written for the verses at that time. And that's how sometimes songs congeal is that I'll see all these things I'm keeping track of. And it almost feels a little bit like a puzzle piece. You know, it's like, oh, there's the puzzle of this. This goes with this. And this could all turn into a song. And then I'll rework certain things. But but I like to be free with the you's and the we's and the eyes uh, because I, I don't feel like you need to be specific and in choosing one to create a feeling like almost like you're you're kind of creating this sort of visual that could be somewhat abstract and in, in it being abstract, I think it can pull from all of those perspectives. Like stray flowers long winded to where they are new. Like, I know exactly what you mean, but the fact that you use long-winded in that not normal way there. I know, because it made it makes no sense. No, well, I think that it popped into my head like that. And then, of course, I said to myself, well, that makes no sense. And then I was like, no, but I know what I mean. And it somehow works, the idea of a flower being long-winded. It somehow painted the picture in a way that it wasn't grammatically correct, but the fact that it painted the picture, I went with it. What it says in the lyric sheet is the like stray flowers long-winded to where they are new. And what I heard when I was listening to it, like stray flowers long-winded to where you they knew or so it made even less sense in listening to it. Or am I just mishearing that entirely? That I don't think, I don't think was intentional if it, because that word wasn't in there. Um, but maybe in some way, the way it was 
I now slid you there, but but yeah, that wasn't necessarily intentional. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and get that second song out there since it's got a similar, well, even a more coherent story in terms of the the lyrics, X-ray eyes, and you know the fact that you take six minutes to resolve it without a lot of wasted space. This is, again, you're not putting three minutes of outro at the end. It's just that the verses have a definite progression to them, sort of the through the ages of, of life. And it just, that's how long it takes to, to get to the end. There's nothing, nothing wrong with it. Do you want to say some introductory words before we play it in full? It is a cycle of life song, starting from beginning to end. And it is a song that reflects the different stages of life that we all go through and potentially some of the struggles as well.
get a real job and a long-term love You are happily ever after called one In this giant of us in my arms Or go to talk to be held These wrinkles I call my tree rings And this is an ancient passing days So quite a bit more elaborate production here as befitting the the longer length. But again, starts very simple. Was this one again that started with that guitar riff that you're playing or did it start with the lyrics? What What's the, the foundation of this song? The story uh, behind this song is that it started with the concept originally. I was actually sitting at a bar watching a football game of all things. And I don't watch that much in terms of sports, but I enjoy, you know, Every now and then, you know, going to a local bar and cheering on a team that I wasn't even sure was in some championship. <laughs> but I actually was watching TV and I saw this this woman and she was standing outside the locker room and all the players were running out. And the woman was probably, you know, she was wearing her like security guard outfit and she looked like she was maybe in her late 50s, early 60s. And she was watching all the players run um, out of the locker room. And there was just this almost little smirk on her face. And she looked like a little kid. You know, she seemed so excited to have the players, you know, running by her, like within a foot of her. And there was just something about seeing almost that eager child that's, you know, somewhat starstruck within this older woman. And I thought to myself, that's what we all are. We're our former self as much as we are our present self until the day we are no longer ourselves. And I very much so had this story in mind that I wanted to tell about how people see us for what we are now, but sometimes we want them to see what we were in order to really know who we are. 
And other times we actually don't want them to see that. We want them to just see who we are in the given moment. That was the story that I had in my mind. And um, the next day I wrote out the story of each stage of life. And then I sat down actually at the piano and there is a piano in that song. And interestingly enough, that was the demo I did. And we actually kept it. Dan liked the piano part. And then I came up with a guitar part to the piano part as well. But we played in the studio along to the piano part. I actually, I will record my demos to a click track because I feel like there's always a chance you want to use something. And and Dan told me to do that a few albums ago. So I, I try to be true to it unless it's like a really quick recording on on my phone. So yeah, that's how that song began. Yeah, it seemed a coincidence. So in prepping this, you've got the video for a whole lot of lows. The whole thing is a little girl jumping around, mouthing the words to your your song, where you get the same theme here with this x-ray eyes. Is that mere coincidence or is this just a, a theme that is on your mind? I would say it's a little bit of both, <laughs> if, <laughs> if that makes any sense. For a whole lot of those, I was trying to think of conceptually, what what is something that creates this positive and optimistic feeling? And I feel, I feel like that more often than not, it's hope for the future, hope for the children to actually be able to move through what we've passed, <laughs> passed on to them and to create something potentially better. And so I thought it would be nice to have the child in me singing this optimistic song. And my friend's daughter loves to sing and perform. And just watching her one day, I just thought, that's what I was like when I was a kid. I love to sing in front of people. And there's something so sweet and endearing about that childlike getting lost in a song and performing it like you're the singer of the song and you're on a stage that's, you know, you're singing your stuffed animals. And so I, I really wanted that innocence of, you know, guys, we're going to be okay to come through. And so that's why I chose to do that. And like you're saying, though, it is very much reflected in the story of X-Ray Eyes that I am still that little girl, though I have... You know, I became much shyer as I grew up, but that little girl is still a part of me. And so that's that is something I wanted to capture in in X-ray eyes. Which, as you say, there are some situations in which you want that recognized and some which you most definitely don't. And so it depends on, you know, if a whole lot of lows were a more overtly personal love song or something, then that would just be a little weird to have that. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And because it was very much about taking the worst of times and finding the highs, I think that it could very much be performed by a young lady. <laughs> it sells it as a, this is just making me think of perverse possible alternatives to this. Uh, you know, having any sort of imagery of people singing along to a song kind of sets that song on a pedestal in a certain way. You know, you picture that as, as arena rock, you know, sort of the everybody is singing along to this. So singing that like really just hit that. Yeah, actually, the chorus in particular, the verse is less so partially, you know, for the pronunciation reasons I was talking before. So it's it kind of actually seeing somebody else mouth those words that you did you pick the ones that she, in terms of where you were focusing on her, like that she would mouth the most accurately? Or was it just purely a matter of, of you had a, a good take of her on the whole thing and then you uh, 
spliced it however made most sense for the video. It was one of those things where we we tried to get good takes of all the lyrics, but there were certain moments that that we potentially had more to work with than others. You know, for example, the fear be the trigger, you be the gun. She really loved that line and, <laughs> and that warmed my heart so much. Um, she told her, her mom that when she was scared, she wanted her to say to her, fear be the trigger, you be the gun. That was one of the best things I'd ever heard about one of my lyrics, I think. So she came up with those moves of fear be the trigger, you be the gun. And so for something like that, which we it was perfect because I wanted that line emphasized anyway. So yeah, that was, it was a great experience because... She had her own ideas of things she wanted to do, but she was also not very difficult to direct as well. You know, I'd, I'd ask her to do something. She was a little pro, even though she'd never done something like that. It's a very joyful, non-ironic presentation, but it has given me a, a horrible idea of like getting little kids to lip sync to uh, Sid Barrett or something like that. Just these dreary, not sing-along songs just to see see how that works. I think um, had it been lyrically different than it is, having a young girl present, it would not have worked as well as it did. But but I do think there is like that optimistic, you know, don't you fret, you know, things may be really bad now, but we're going to turn this around. It's, it's going to be okay. And I think there's something about, you know, watching a child play and have fun and be in the moment that really captures that. All right, so let's turn that sort of thought to X-ray eyes. Might as well start with the lyrics on that, since you say that you're, in fact, to start out, I wear real shoes now, the kind you must lace up. I play with real toys, too, the kind with tiny plastic moving parts. Not exactly something verbatim that a child would say, but you're coming from that perspective. Yeah, it's sort of this, this, they expect me to find the right words. They didn't when I couldn't stand when grown-ups look at me that way. I just wish I knew how to say. So it's hardly child vocabulary here, but you're sort of doing some strange imaginative synthesis of your current self with what you might have thought back then, something like that. Exactly. Yes. It's very much a perspective one would only have after they lived through that, but almost like reflecting on those times, but reflecting on them in such a way that you're, you're almost in it at the moment. But clearly, yes, a child wouldn't say it that way. Uh, a grown-up reflecting back on being there might interpret it as such. And then what is the tone? It's a minor key song. It seems to end with a little bit of, I smile to myself as I hear someone whispering to someone else. So it's ultimately positive, sort of wistful. Is this a sad song in some way <laughs> or, or just in terms of uh, as sad as a, a deep philosophical thought? Is <laughs> It's going to end up being. I don't know if I would. I would say that it's a sad song as much as a maybe realistic song about moving through the different stages of life. And I think that there is something I guess, I guess inherently sad about about aging because we're all heading towards the end of something, so you can't escape that. But I think that sometimes we see older people and we think of them as just people that are soon going to pass and as opposed to seeing them as the culmination of all that they've been. So in a way, it also has a positive spin on it too. The idea of looking at someone and not just seeing what they are now and respecting all that they were. So I, I wanted it to be positive in that aspect. But of course, there is, like I said, an inherent sadness to it as well. Yeah, I was kind of comparing in my in my head this to Elvis Costello's Veronica, you know, which of course focuses entirely on the elderly woman in the nursing home and whose mind is half gone and 
reflecting back very literally and visually in the video for that, but the on uh, racing around as a young person and kind of seeing that that spark in there. But the fact that, you know, that's only the last fifth of your story here, that you're going through all the stages. It's a different statement. Yeah, definitely. I actually am not that familiar with that song, but I, I feel like I should be and now I'll have to listen to it. Um, I wanted it to include the stage at which, you know, you're a teenager and you're trying to be all grown up, but you're still that little kid inside. And I wanted it also to be about trying to become an adult and you still feel like you're that teenager and you, you know, you maybe want someone to, to help you out, but no, it's time to, you know, go out on your own and have responsibilities or, or the mother reflecting on, you know, when she herself was a baby. So I wanted it to be about all these different, potentially nostalgic moments that we we have in our lives. And then just that x-ray eyes itself, it's kind of trying to think about what the connotations of those words in terms of how it affects the overall tone of the song. Like it's a, in one of your interviews, you said you guys were sometimes referred to as, you know, gentle singer songwriter stuff and some as geek rock. And so, you know, as soon as you bring up X-Ray, you know, there's a whole punk band called X-Ray Specs, I believe. And, uh, the fact that you're bringing up the, for the first time, like from the kid's perspective, that's the kind of thing that kids think about is like, ooh, x-rays, I can see Superman or whatever. I can see through whatever. What's the emotional resonance of that phrase to you here? For me, it was about seeing through the surface, you know, seeing beyond the immediate presentation or the immediate, the stage of life that you're in, seeing beyond and I used obviously the literal in- interpretation of that. You know, when you go to to get an X-ray, someone sees beyond your external body. But I intended it to to conceptually re- reflect this idea that that you're seeing that not just you know where the person is at now in their life, but where they came from and what brought them here. Well, if you want an even geekier version of that, you should refer to phrenology. If only they would feel the shape of your head, they would be able to tell your personality and therefore, you know, how you were throughout your life and not just it see below the surface by feeling the surface. Anything else about the specific you know, word choices or anything in, in this very long set of lyrics here? I'm not going to make you march through it. Any, any particular lines that jump out or, or that were giving you problems as you were doing this? It was strangely not as difficult as I thought to piece this song together. I thought it was going to be a little bit more challenging because there were so many stages that I wanted to to go through. But I think that the one thing I wanted to do is change the the lyrics ever so slightly, depending on the stage of life, how one felt about being in that stage of life. So there's these subtle changes, I think, that you'll see from the initial verse to the final verse. And so I wanted to have these subtle shifts that maybe you wouldn't recognize on the first listen to the song, you know, things like, wanting people to have x-ray eyes versus not having x-ray eyes so that there was would maybe be different levels at which you could take the song it could be the straightforward oh a story from you know beginning to end a cycle of life it could be the complexity of maybe how we deal with where we are in life if upon maybe a second listen so i wanted to have layers in that regard it is a song about as simple as the cycle of life is it's a complex journey to go on Having that as an abstract idea before you've written, as opposed to just sitting down and writing the whole damn thing, then presents certain challenges of craft. You know, I have to come up with something about middle age here. And it's got to be as long as the previous ones, you know, whereas I could see 
just sitting down and be inspired to write one of the stages like that just spills out. But, you know, the odds of having them all spill out that easily seem slim. I think it was that I felt like I was developing this character that I knew well. And I, I do come from a film school background. I've always liked to write not just songs. So I think the reason it wasn't as challenging as I thought it was and it was going to be initially is because I did have a clear cut vision of this person in my mind. That is that some of the things in the song definitely are a reflection of me and some of them are potentially more like a character because there's a lot of those things that I have not experienced in my life. The vision of what I was trying to create was pretty clear and that's why the verses rolled out fairly easily. All right. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on the arrangement on this one since we spent so much time on the first one, but we've got some obvious new elements here. You've got what, these are synth strings on this one, as opposed to our, our third song where you had actual strings? No, they are they are not a synth. Yeah, they're the work of Caitlin Wolfberg, who played strings on Low is the Moon. So it's a lot of tracks of her. It is a choir of one. But yeah, that is, that's all real. So what's the process in terms of you and she and Dan figuring out what's going to go where here. Before Caitlin came to the studio, Dan and I sat down with the song and had an idea of what we wanted from the strings. And then we definitely leave space for Caitlin to add ideas as well. We essentially wanted the strings to come in as the person matures. So the production does change and it the production essentially grows and more layers are added as the person ages. And so that was conceptually what we were going for. And it starts off with the the pizzicato, you know, just like that. It's kind of like sneaking in that like adulthood sneaking in. And then it turns into these very lush arrangements. So yeah, that was something that we had certain melodic ideas for. And then, like I said, Caitlin came in and, and heard the track and we worked together in the studio on it. Well, yeah, it really takes off and gives a nice you know, it makes it so it deserves to have what six, five verses, six verses. There's a yes, <laughs> I think it's six. <laughs> yeah, so you've got you know from about three minutes in, lots of strings, and then okay, well, let's just have everything go away. Do just one guitar to have have a lull, and then have for the the last pre-chorus and chorus, you know, have everything come on full force again. Nice dramatic arc. That dramatic arc is a great way to to put it. Um, it was very much about having things break down as potentially the person is breaking down as well. Well, let's get our third one, different album, same production environment though, right? Still Dan from, for Let Alone See 2011? Yes, that is correct. Okay. So say something about that project and when the clouds hang this low in particular as our example of something from a different era. It still obviously has a very similar sensibility in certain ways. It's not, I mean, this particular song is not as guitar heavy, but that doesn't really, that's just about this song. The, the album as a whole has a lot of different textures. In fact, I had initially when I was listening through and trying to figure out like what would be an interesting old one to talk to, I had picked up the one, the one after this on here, the summer's going to burn me because that, you know, has a whole Tom Waitsy horn, old timey feel, but I'm glad we're doing this sort of a, almost a lullaby one. I was trying to think what the genre is, some kind of ballad. The saddest lullaby <laughs> ever. <laughs> no. um, that is a good way to put it, though, because I did want the song to have that feel. Um, I wanted it to be comforting, but also incredibly dark. And this, a song is about very much so about loss. But but I think there's beauty in heartbreak, and and sometimes that's 
that's what you uh, you need to focus on, I think, to pull yourself through it. So although I think if you weren't paying attention to the words, the song is a lot prettier than <laughs> maybe the story itself, which is definitely a fairly sad one. Uh, the title obviously gives it away. <laughs> that is from, from my album, Let Alone See. And that was one of the first records that I really wanted to work hard and get on in there and write songs that that maybe I didn't just come to me as ideas and then it wound up being a collection that but songs that I want I wanted to potentially relate to one another I wanted the whole album to be a cohesive whole and I wanted the vibe of the record to be one singular experience even though it was gonna you know ebb and flow and have highs and lows so that's one of the first records I think that I really took time with. And even though I had worked with Dan on one record prior, I think this was the first record we really took our time with and tried to make a cohesive album experience with. So you didn't read it 
That's what they all gonna say. Like the fabric's been torn where the tailor can't fix it. In the sweetest, softest heart, will she sat here all night before? She's pretty like an old record, but nobody's listening. They're listening to the sound of empty glasses sitting down, like kings and queens stripped of their blue-blooded nouns. Ice melts time for seconds. You, you, I the exit, but there's nowhere to go when clouds hang slow. No, there's nowhere to go when the clouds hang slow. Yeah. So, wow, this is like a country ballad level depressing, uh, <laughs> but in such a pretty little package, it's uh, kind of got that, that late night. I, I don't know if lullaby is quite the right tune, but something that is sets one softly to, to sleep in a nice way. I shouldn't, I'm not bored. That's not what I'm saying. Say more about this arrangement in particular. This has a lot more of that crazy synth as a pretty central thing here. Would that be a Dan thing? Would that be a you thing? That the thing that makes it angelic in that one part? Or at what stage would something like that be added? The synth plays off of the the backup vocals and the strings. So I think of all those things as sort of a bit of a united front. And essentially, those are playing off of my finger picked uh, guitar part and then some of Mark Thomas's ambient textures as well. So there's a lot going on there. And in a way, we're, <laughs> I'd say we're all responsible for um, creating the atmosphere of, of that song. Yeah. And the fact that you've got sort of two intros that you've got a whole, the first 20, you just start off with the atmospherics and that we're going to use your voice in a, in a choir like, you know, echoey little way, which you couldn't have to do live. <laughs> Is this a totally different thing live? Well, actually, we did manage to do a version of that live because it's essentially around. And even though there's multiple of my voices doing each part, some of the vocal parts we, we managed to do because I have a dear friend, uh, Laura Martin, who's an amazing singer. And we, you know, trade off services. I'll sing backups with her when she's, if she plays shows and she'll sing with me when I play shows. So I would have her singing and then Steve Giles also on um, the bass player. He sings as well. So we would have three voices and 
Ryan Brown, who played drums on that record, he also sings. So, so he was able to add some, some vocals here and there too. So we managed to pull off some of that live. Of course, you know, it didn't sound quite like the recording, but we would experiment with that. We did that with Sail Away as well. Um, I, I know you played that at the top of the show. We, cause there's these like choiry Sail Away vocals that echo my lead vocal. And we would do that and everyone would sing those sail away. So I was very lucky to have that many singers to be able to make that happen live. I wanted to create this sort of, you know, almost like you're floating in the clouds uh, feeling in the beginning of that song. And I'd say that the song is very much, I think of it as an abstract painting. You know, it's not a very, it's not a, a story from beginning to end. It's these different imagery, uh, I think, that that we associate with loss and that kind of pain that you just don't know what to do with yourself. Let's say vignettes so that you got like a, a little thing about somebody who it sounds like she's just received word that her husband is dead in the war or something. But that's four lines. There's no detail. Just get it out there. Another reason to be depressed. People who are potentially hanging around down at the bar and you save the sweetest, softest whore till well into the song. You don't lead with that. That's some that's some sharp imagery. There's a, a dive bar that is no longer a dive bar. I think it's quite a fancy bar now, but uh, called the King Eddie. Or I think it's just King Eddie. And it's uh, in downtown LA, uh, right on Skid Row. And I, I lived downtown for a while, but it was it was several years ago. And downtown was beginning to change, but it still had these local dive bars and the way downtown LA has changed now, a lot of those dive bars have made their way into being hipster joints. But I used to go there when it was still, you know, just, you know, a watering hole for locals. And some of those lyrics were were inspired by what that place once was. You're not being appreciative of the, the singer of the evening. I was trying to picture all these different moments and and that actually came from more being at a being at a, a karaoke situation in a actually a different dive bar where you know everyone just looked like they just wished they could shut the woman off that was singing and they just were like asking for for second rounds and I was thinking oh that's that's a good one you know you just you have some horrible music accompaniment and then everyone drinks more um so yeah no that that imagery came from a, a different place I I used to frequent and then just the like kings and queens stripped of their blue blooded nouns. That's on par with your your use of long winded before. That you know, I know exactly what you mean. But the fact that you use the word nouns there, it's as if you're not allowed to use that part of speech anymore. It's that, as opposed to titles or you know some other actually recognizable way of referring to that kind of thing. Yeah, again, it was something that was a phrase that came out as, you know, it wasn't something that I sat there trying to construct. It was uh, something that came to mind. And, you know, it was also just thinking about that people from all walks of life, that sometimes pain and loss is is what what actually strips us of all artifice. You know, it's like all, you know, people that experience immense pain and loss. I think that sometimes that can be what actually unites us, as weird as that might sound. And, and I don't wish that to be the, the only uniting force. But I do think that that line was very much about, about that, if that makes any sense. There's ultimately nowhere to go. We're, we're sort of stuck in this uh, stretch of the human condition. <laughs> yes, but there is the bar, right? And there is the, 
there is your watering hole, but there's nowhere else to go. I was just trying to capture that feeling of, of you just don't know what to do with yourself. And I think that that we experience that sometimes when we, we don't know where to put certain feelings that we're having. And so I wanted to create this song that encapsulated that. And as much as I like the atmospherics in the production, like the song doesn't need it. It's got a very strong, almost familiar melody and chord progression. I couldn't put my finger on. That's why I kept thinking lullaby, like, cause it has some, it conjures up a familiar sort of feeling, but then it's just got such strong imagery and obviously singing it in a bar to people. It's only too appropriate. This would definitely work even as a very stripped down thing, though it's wonderful. I guess it's also, again, like the first song, even though this one is five minutes long, well, that's just because it's slower. It's not because it has 10 verses. It just got almost the same structure as Whole lot of Lows. It's very pretty concise. Only a minute at the end, really, again, even though you have all these elements to play with, with the synth and the strings and your round vocals and things that, again, could have kept going for a while. It's it's nicely compact. It is one of those songs that I, I, I think when I first wrote it, it did have more traditional folk song feel to it. And the, the production was essentially adding another another layer to it that the song could potentially be played without it and hopefully still have a similar impact. But we took it on to almost create that feeling through the production, as well as through the melodic choices, the lyric choices. So to have those those things all all come together to really, if you were, you know, if you were paying attention to the lyrics, you know, you would get the song on a few different levels. But if you were only listening to the production, it might have that lullaby quality or that kind of dreamy feeling to it that is potentially at odds with what the story of the song is. And it always makes me think of, uh, there's a Tom Waits quote that I'll probably butcher, but he said something along the lines of liking beautiful melodies that tell me terrible things, <laughs> something of that nature. I don't know if it's, it's beautiful or pretty melodies, something like that. But Tom Waits is an inspiration to me. And I find that I gravitate towards music like that as well. I like that juxtaposition. I I like, you know, potentially upbeat sounding songs that have dark things to say and vice versa. I like that that complexity. Well, I can think of a lot of his songs that also have the, you know, shimmery guitars and stuff. But this this particular kind of like I, I wrote in my notes here when the, the synth freak out comes, it's the, the shimmery heart of despair. <laughs> it would be very hard to, to convey so that the angelic aspect of it is not even so much in contrast to the sadness but that's kind of how sadness feels in a way, you know, especially when you're kind of really wallowing in it at the bar that like, it is beautiful. There's a reason why there are songs made about it. It's not just something we want to avoid. Yes, exactly. No, that's a great way to put it. It's not in contrast to, I think that's very accurate. Um, I actually wrote another, a, a song for my, my other project that's called Ain't It Pretty How a Heart Breaks. And I think that that, summarizes that sentence as well is sometimes you just have to find the beauty in in the broken and i think we we all feel that and not even when we're intentionally seeking it out i think that 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 moves us through the most challenging of you know times it's it's there's something about 
being at the bottom that there is a, it's, it's a life experience. And as heavy as your head might be, you know, there's always tomorrow. And I think there's some of that when you hit rock bottom that you feel when you're, you know, sitting alone at the bar, tears in your beer kind of thing. Well, speaking of your other project, let's introduce our last song, the opening track on and on from Low Country, the 2016 release by Deer County, which is nice for you to put those two Low Country and Deer County together so that I would stop calling the band Deer Country. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that has happened many times. <laughs> yeah, so say something about, I mean, this is a whole other project that has been going on. This is a much more short-lived thing, right? This is your only release or had, had it been existing in some form before that? It definitely existed a few years before we did our first record, but we only have one album out and we're working on our second album currently. It's a project I, I started with Mark Lynn. So this is definitely more of a band collaboration than my Dots project. We do have a four-piece band together that we work with on this project and we've we've been uh, trying to get our, our second album done. It's taken a little time because, you know, the Life gets in the way, um, as it does. But yeah, um, this project's a little bit more country, a little bit more Southern rock uh, than my other project. And it's a little more stripped down in terms of the instrumentation. There's not quite as many layers. It's got a more rock and roll soul vibes than my other project does. And is the style different enough that it creates whole new, you can play venues that you couldn't otherwise play and have a whole new fan base accessible to you? Or is it really just this is a creative opportunity. And so it's nice to not be the only driver on some project. Definitely nice to not be the only driver, but I do think Deer County would potentially play different shows than the Dots Project, where the Dots is a little more dream pop, indie folk. I'd say Deer County would fall more into like the the country playing with Americana bands. So we definitely play different shows, which I think does open up a different set of fans for the music. I don't think that someone who, you know, liked my other project wouldn't like Deer County and vice versa. But I do think there is difference enough that I don't think of them as interchangeable what space they occupy. Mm hmm. And just we should mention before we go that so I know you you started the record company when you did your first record, right? So you've been just DIYing the whole thing the whole time. Is that accurate? This is true. Yes. I very much uh, grew up in DIY punk scene. And, you know, as soon as I started making my own albums, I very much so wanted to release them on my own label. So I, I started doing that several years ago at this point. So does that mean that when you present all these tracks to Dan Garcia as an initial thing that you're having to pay him as a producer or is he, as you said, more a member of the band such that it's just is being the, the helm, the master of your own ship here, does that put a professional skein on everything? So everybody's getting paid for rehearsals and all that kind of stuff. Or We have agreements worked out with each other where essentially that if the project is making money, everyone is compensated. And if the project isn't making money, then we still want to make records. So I mean, that's kind of how, how we, we work it because if there's really no money to make, be made, we're not going to not make the music. And I, I'm very lucky to work with musicians that aren't like, I need to be paid this much per song. And, you know, Dan, I need this much for my studio time. He's worked with me on that. And so, so I think that we have a relationship where he is part of the project, not just, you know, some a work for hire. Well, that is wonderful that you've been able to establish those 
relationships, but I guess, you know, that it was a, it was, you even had multiple tours just by yourself, that this was a, a very gradual thing, building up this network of helpers. I did begin as many do with, you know, just my guitar and touring by myself. And I just, I really wanted more than the single guitar or vocals for my music. It was, it was just something that I wanted it to grow in regards to the production and having collaboration. And, and so I, I really pushed for, for finding people to work with because I knew I, I, I was ready to evolve from the single voice guitar place, even though that can be a, you know, a beautiful place and, and much can be done with it. It was, I just wanted more than that for my music. Well, the new record sounds great. Really. I mean, it's production is consistently across even, even to the early stuff, I, I think is very high level sounds more expensive than it is. I suppose that says probably something about the age we live in, <laughs> digital stuff. And also I have to say that Dan has a, a console that he built himself. When it comes to being an audiophile, he's got all bases covered. So I, I'm incredibly lucky to have him be a part of my music. He brings so much to the table in that regard. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time. Been fun listening through all your albums here. Thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate you uh, having me on. All right, so here again is On and On by Deer County. You got your hair pulled back and you're driving fast Like nothing ever seems to last You got the radio on and the AC on Feels like you've been a long time gone Cause summer or winter Spring or fall you miss us
Thanks so much to Erica. If you listen to my last episode and pay attention to when I announce what's coming next, you will have been surprised because I had announced Pratik Kuhad for this time. Well, that got delayed at the uh, request of his management as he has an EP coming out pretty soon. So that is my excuse for this episode taking as long as it did to come out, but the next one should come quickly. And that episode will feature two gentlemen, Jeffrey Casey and Mark Jackson, from a band called Rema, R-H-E-M-A. Please visit nakedlyexaminemusic.com for more episodes. And again, I want to remind you, this podcast can only continue with your support. Please contribute at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. You can also follow this podcast on Facebook. Please share around the episodes to your friends. And I always appreciate if you can go to the iTunes store or wherever you listen to this and leave a nice rating or review. Until next time, keep on musicin'. This is Mark Lintonmeyer signing off. Music